We're uh, back at it. We're in questions number 85, 86, and 87. And let me give you a little bit of a review about what happened where we were. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we saw from questions 39 to 81. That's a lot. a big chunk. We're on number 85. So 39 to 81 are all the moral law, the Ten Commandments. It's all what is this commandment or what does God require here? What is this in God's law? 40 questions and then statements, 40 questions and answers about God's perfect law in 39 through 81. Then we saw last time we met in the evening, question 82 to 84, that was all about our inability to keep that moral law. That was just three questions running at the same topic of this is what it's required and we can't do it. So we let it hang and that uh, uncomfortable cognitive dissonance of we now know 40 questions deep what God requires just based on his own character and that we can't do it. We can't meet that requirement. So what do we do? How do we escape the punishment for failure to keep the moral law of God? So we see here, remember, we kind of have needed to say this a bunch of times. So the catechism itself is not infallible. It's just men packaging together biblical truths in a way that they perceive to be useful. Church history has proven it to be pretty useful to many, many people. Not infallible, but useful. And the pastoral nature of it all, when you walk somebody through 40 questions about God's moral law and that you can't do it, what's the point of that? The point is it for you to come to Christ, what we talked about this morning, the finished work. That's the whole point of it. There's a pastoral tone to this. It's not just data. Here's facts and figures and know these things to be true about God, about you and all that kind of stuff so that you can pass a test. This is to guide you in sanctification, to bring you up into greater maturity, greater faithfulness. That's the point. So we're thankful for that, for God having used these men. And we know from places like Hebrews 13 that we do have leaders that in the church that we are to be thankful for. So we're thankful when something like this is given to us that's useful, but the most useful element of it is it just drawing us into the scriptures and just pull, pulling us there. Because if it isn't grounded there, then it's useless to us. So let's look at question number 85 and see what it has to say and, and where it takes us into the Bible. So the question goes like this, question number 85. What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? That's a pretty straightforward question that many of us have thought through. What does he require? What is required to escape the wrath of God? Now that we know we haven't kept his law and we can't, therefore there is only wrath for us, is there any escape? And if there is escape, what's required to get on that track and get off the one we are on? So here's the answer. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. So let's break this down to where we can understand it. This is all about faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. I'm gonna say it at the end and we're gonna say it here at the beginning as two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance, same coin, one object, two, two facets, two sides like a coin. 
So here's where the scriptures bring us into the requirement of faith and repentance. God requires that in order to escape his wrath. Acts 20, I backed it up a little further than the catechism has, so I have in 20 verse 18. And this is, for context, this is Paul talking to the Ephesians elders. He spent many, many years with these men. He's never going to see him again. He's going to Jerusalem, never to come back. So he's talking to the elders at the church at Ephesus. He's going to Jerusalem. They're staying there. And so this is in the middle of him talking to them. And so we'll see of this proof text for the requirement of faith and repentance. And when they came to him, meaning the elders of the Ephesian church, came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, and here it is, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts out saying, you know that I didn't shrink back from any of this. You know I said the same thing in public and in private. The message that I gave to everybody was repentance and faith. That's what I told everybody. And he's only mimicking what Jesus said. Jesus' first words recorded in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, which is better translated preaching, it's the Greek word caruso, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe, repent and faith. Repentance and faith. When Jesus comes, the first thing out of his mouth as he comes preaching is repent and believe. The requirement. So there's no escaping God's wrath without faith and repentance. That's what we're driving at here. If we're, we, we know from those 40 questions what God's moral law is. We know from the previous three that we can't do it. But the requirement to get out of that wrath is faith and repentance. thing is a winsome third way between I can't do it and I can strive to do it on my own. Or, or there's no alternatives. God doesn't grade on the curve and there is no partial credit. It's faith and repentance. And then we do it through, the, the, the answer continues on, faith and repentance with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. How does Christ communicate to us the need, the necessity, the reality of faith and repentance in order to escape his wrath? How is that communicated? Here's where the verses that the, uh, the Westminster divines, that's what they call them throughout history. It doesn't mean that they believed them to be divine. It was just an old school word for guys who give themselves to the study of divinity, study of God. They cite Proverbs twice and then Isaiah, and then I throw in Romans 10 because it helps tie it together for us. But Proverbs 2 one through five is one of their first citations for it. One of the outward means as to how we are communicated to about this truth for the necessity for faith and repentance. It says this, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, 
then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If you receive, if you make your ear attentive, you hear. Proverbs 8, 33 through 36. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And then Isaiah 55, verse three. Incline your ear and come to me. Incline your ear. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So far, we're getting three Old Testament passages saying, hear, listen, intake it audibly. And then let's just button it up with Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When you, when you got converted or when you've talked to other people who got converted, did they ever say, I had never heard that before? I had never heard that. No, I, I sat in, in such and such a kind of church for whatever for years. I never heard any of that. I, I, I was here. I, I never, nobody ever told me that. I, the hearing element, and, and this is coming straight out of the Bible. It's not to say that God doesn't use the written word that people have ever picked up Bibles and gotten saved. That's certainly possible. But what the primary means is God doesn't send out writers. He sends out preachers. Jesus doesn't come writing. He comes preaching. He certainly doesn't come movie producing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you can make a case for writing because in John 8, he at least moves his finger in the dirt. But he definitely didn't come doing anything artsy. It was just speaking, proclaiming, preaching. Faith comes by hearing. How will they hear if nobody comes? How will they be saved? How they will believe if they never hear? The outward means that we're identifying here in the scriptures of faith and repentance is hearing. It's not to be, not to be said that like if you hand an unbeliever a Bible, that that's a bad thing. But, but what did the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the Bible say? How will, how will I understand this unless somebody tells me, unless somebody speaks to me? We're, and then what, is, what does it say about Philip? It says in Acts chapter eight, and Philip opened his mouth. Now we understand as human beings that are adults, when you speak, you open your mouth. But the Holy Spirit went so far as to record the words, he opened his mouth. Faith comes by hearing. So faith and repentance has got to be spoken out loud. So then you have to ask the question, number 86, number 87, what is faith and what is repentance? If that's the means that God has designated by which we escape the wrath that is rightly due for all sinners, then what is it? What is faith and what is repentance? So if question 86 is that. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is, here's the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So faith in Jesus Christ, first of all, is a saving grace. Saving grace is a, a two-word phrase that we, we've heard countless times. We can't even number the amount of times. 
but what is saving grace? What is a, let's just put a, an indefinite article on it, saving grace? How would we explain that? Well, a saving grace must mean that it's a gift of God to us and that it actually does something. So it's a saving grace, not just some kind of grace, but a saving one. Hebrews 10, 39 is what the uh, Westminster authors uh, cite for it. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith preserve their souls. We have faith and we are saved. It actually works. But the answer goes on to say, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone. Receive and rest. Now receive, we know from John 1, 12, right? But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now that word receive is important. It says received, not taken. It says gave, not earned. So received is the illustration I always use. It makes sense in, in uh, Texas. Wide receivers, what do they have to do? To catch the ball. But can they catch it unless it's thrown to them? They got nothing. You have no potency or value if they don't throw it to you. You're just receiving it. It's just Jesus dropping it in you, receiving it. And it was given the right to become children of God. Not that you earned it. It wasn't bestowed. It wasn't rewarded. It was given, given. So that's the receiving. But then the, the statement says that whereby we receive and rest upon him alone. Isaiah 26, three and four, talking about God. So Isaiah speaking about who God is. You, God, keep him, any person, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for he, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Personal trust, if you've been coming to the justification study, we know that's the third element of the Reformation understanding of what saving faith actually is, that we need to know the facts, assent to them to be true about the gospel, and then personally trust. Lean on it. That's what the word rest means. The word rest doesn't mean take no care or have it be no big deal. The word rest means you're sitting on it, like you're resting on a chair. You're resting on a bed. You're resting on a bench. You're, all your weight is on it. If it crumbles, then you fall. You have nothing else but all of it. Trust is only as valid as its object. So it says trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. You can rest on that rock because it won't crack. It won't break. They go on to quote from Philippians 3, verse 9. Paul, jumping, it's in the middle of a sentence, but we'll get the gist of it when we get into it. And be found in him, Paul says, he wants to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. The righteousness of God depends upon faith. Paul says, that's what I want to be found having had. I don't want to be found with anything else. If I'm found with anything else, then I'm doomed. But I need that righteousness, and it only comes by faith. I need that because it comes from faith. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is the lever we saw in the justification study last week that, that moves righteousness into my account. The imputation. 
counted as if it was my righteousness. What we look at as the great exchange. Jesus gets all my sin and I get all his righteousness that he earned. I rightly earned and did all that sin credited to me, but it's going to him. He rightly earned and got all of that righteousness and he sent it to me. It's the great exchange. It's the most lopsided exchange in the history of the world. It's imputed to us. Double imputation, it's called. My sin to him, his righteousness to me. Because that's what we lack in order to be satisfactory in God's sight is righteousness. So in the last verse that they quote is Galatians 2, 16, which we've also seen before in the justification study. So it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, but because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what we need to see here, what we cannot miss that, that the, the, the catechism points out so helpfully is that faith and works are mutually exclusive. They don't co-mingle. There is no system where they coexist. You're either going to have one or you have the other. And if you have one, you'll be saved. If you have the other, you will be condemned. They are mutually exclusive. And then here's the other element that's wrapped up into all of this. Going back to that very first element that faith is a saving grace. If faith is something that everybody intrinsically has, then what does that then make salvation? It makes it a transaction. Because if I have it and I can just pay for it, then that's a transaction. It's not grace. But we all know we're saved by grace and grace is a gift. Now, it could be a lopsided, very generous transaction. Like when my dad knew that we needed a car when we were first married and we had just a couple of jalopies and I mean, we needed a, something bad. He said, I'll sell you my car for $1. It was a Durango, Powerade Blue. He sold it for $1 and that was a lopsided deal, but I still had to actually go get that dollar. Otherwise, the state counts it as a gift and then he gets hit with a big old tax thing. So, but if I buy it for a dollar, then he doesn't have to pay any taxes on it and he can just give it to me. But I still had to go give him a real dollar. I had that dollar all on my own and I bought it from him and it wasn't near what it was worth, but I still made a transaction. I had something that you accepted in an exchange. That's a transaction. That's not grace. So if I intrinsically have faith and we're all born with a little bit of faith and we just need to know where's the best place to deposit it, then that's not salvation by grace alone. That's salvation by a very lopsided and generous kind transaction. You took my best efforts and just said, ah, we'll just go ahead and count that. But they were genuinely mine. But we don't have any faith. It's gotta be given to us. It itself is a saving grace. So then you have to answer the other side of the coin. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life, the answer is in question 87. Uh, it is a saving grace also, which we'll read, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, 
turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Long, wordy, Puritan sentences. We're going to break it down. So a saving grace, we know that's a gift. But where can we see that repentance is a gift in the scripture? We can't just say that it is. The Bible has to say that it is. Acts 11, 18. Acts 11 is in the middle of a story, but it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. How did the Gentiles in Acts chapter 11 get repentance? God granted it to them. God gave it to them. Repentance is a gift. They didn't have it. They didn't have the ability to do it. God gave it to them, gave it to them just like faith. If not, then this is a transaction. I have it in me to repent. It won't be that great. It won't be perfect, but it'll still be, you know, it'll show that I'm serious and God will take that. That's still a payment that you paid. So we reject that because the Bible rejects it. And then the, the question goes on. It says, or the answer goes on. It's a saving, it's a saving grace whereby a sinner out of true sense of his sin true sense of our sin. When you think of people having a true awareness of their own sin, you go to Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching to these gathered people. He's, he's in the middle of his sermon and they just cut him off. They say in Acts 2, 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? He had just got done telling them that they're the ones who crucified Jesus. That they are guilty and they're cut to the heart. They get it. What should we do? And then the answer is repent and be baptized. Repent and then believe, we'll see. We don't have time to get into what Peter means by baptism this, this evening, but we will at some point. Uh, but what shall we do? A true sense of sin. Without a true sense of sin, no one will repent. Why? What's the reason? If, I don't, if I'm not that bad, then what do I need to turn from? And if God's not that holy, then he'll just accept it. He'll be fine with it. Have you ever thought about, we've all been around, we've all been there. We've had friends, family members, people maybe we've even led to Christ. And then one day they just up and they're done. They're, they're, they're backslidden or they, uh, they apostatize, if we want to use a big fancy word. They just reject the faith. They're just done with it. Whether they formally do it and they become an atheist now or they're just, they just don't come to church. They don't care. They don't have any desire for it. Why do people do that? It, it, one, we know that they were never saved if they can do that, but it's because they don't have any real sense of their sin. If you actually knew how bad your sin was and how holy God is, you'd be trembling You'd be horrified. You'd be looking for any way to be saved from it. But when you just, you get to where you're like, man, I'm not that bad. This isn't that bad. And, and I, I don't need, and God's, God's fine with me. Does, I mean, it doesn't do anyone any favors to soft pedal sin. This, what we want to do is this. We want to double down, triple down on God's love and never mention sin. God is love. 1 John 4, 16, perfectly clear. He is love. He is also just. He is also holy. So if we ignore many for the sake of the one, 
then what we're telling people is God just loves you so much. And eventually in our society of high esteem, high self-worth, everybody look at me, I'm shouting on social media how awesome I am. They just go, yeah, he should love me because I am so great. I, I got another one of the fan club, just put him in line. But then you go to the other side, if you're feeling bad, if you're depressed, then God loves you. Well, who cares? It hadn't fixed anything. If he loves me, he sure is sorry at it. And he has no ability to do anything about my life that I don't like. But if we're under the conviction of a real sense of sin, then now we go, whoa. That's why when people sell diamonds, they put that velvet behind it. So you can see how shiny that diamond actually is and how its texture is so different than that velvet. Now you're aware of, wow, I had no clue. That's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners, and he's not being facetious, and he's not humble bragging. The closer he gets to Christ, the brighter the light becomes, the dirtier he sees himself to be. A true sense of sin is part of repentance. It leads to repentance. But that's not where it ends. So the question goes, a true sense of sin and an apprehension, meaning a grasping of the mercy of God. Because what good does it do if we know that God punishes sinners, but he has no mercy for sinners? So you look at a passage like Joel 2, verse 12 and following, which is what they cited in the catechism. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your garments, rend your hearts and not your garments, meaning don't just do it outwardly, be inwardly. Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's who your God is. Come with weeping and mourning and understanding of your sin. Don't make it just an outward symbol like, okay, I'm sad, here, I'll tear my shirt. No, in your heart, be that, because he is gracious and he is merciful. Grasp, understand that. They also quote Jeremiah 33, or Jeremiah 3, verse 22. Return, O faithless sons, return, come back, repent. I will heal your faithfulness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. I will heal your faithlessness. That is mercy. You grab onto mercy when you realize what justice means for you. When, when people complain about certainly the doctrine of election or anything about God being God, what they think is that there's some kind of category of injustice with God. But God only has two ways to interact with people. Either he interacts with them according to his justice or according to his mercy. Nobody will receive injustice. Some will receive mercy. The rest will receive justice. And when you realize what justice means for you because you have a true sense of your sin, then all you want is mercy. All you ask for is mercy. And that's all God gives to those people who cry out for that in repentance is mercy. And those are the kind of people that as it goes on in the same answer, doth with grief and hatred of a sin turn from it to God. So repentance does indeed involve a turning. So when we were reading through the book of Acts and our family worship, and we got to Acts chapter two, and Peter says, repent and believe, like we just read a few minutes ago. Uh, I remember where we were. That was back when the kids had triple stack beds. It was, well, it was a trundle bed underneath the bunk bed. 
and uh, they were all crammed in one little space. And uh, we were sitting all in there doing, you know, family worship. And uh, I just pick up this little bunny that uh, Daphne had. And I was like, this is what repentance means. The bunny's going this way. And then he turns around and now the bunny's coming this way. And so from then on, when I would have the kids review, like, what did we talk about last time? Daphne goes, and the bunny turned around back to God and repent the bunny. That was her phrase, repent the bunny. The bunny turned around back to God. So on my own accident, uh, repentance is permanently tied to bunnies in her mind. But that's better than have it be with Easter eggs. But that's the, the idea that I was trying to communicate was you're going one way and then you're not going another way. So there is no repentance where there is no turning. That's what it is. It's a change of direction. We are going this way now, not this way now. So Ezekiel 36, 31 is a picture for that, that they cited to this hating sin and turning from it. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. You hate sin. You hate that you did it. You wish that you never had. But then another major prophet speaks, Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19. I have heard Ephraim grieving. We, you know what it means when it says Ephraim? Ephraim is one of the half tribes of, so Joseph is the technical 12th tribe of Israel, but his tribe gets split between Ephraim and Manasseh. So Ephraim is just usually talking about uh, a rebellious northern tribe in Israel. So don't be confused by that. So I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So we see here a biblical command of being ashamed of our sin. You should hate it. You shouldn't look back and go, man, those were the good old days, but I can't live like that anymore. And you can't go, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't great, but you know, it's whatever, so it doesn't matter. No, we should look back and go, that was awful. That put Christ on the cross. That, that caused him to say, I thirst on the cross as a picture of hell. I shouldn't look back and go, that's no big deal. I should hate it, but I should turn from it. And not just weep and, and beat myself. That's also the wrong perspective. You can't beat yourself. Christ was beaten for you. You can't, you can't pay for that sin. He paid it for you. You should just acknowledge it for what it is and turn from it and turn to God. A converted person hates sin and longs to obey God. Not because of any kind of guilt that they feel, but because of the gratitude that the guilt that was paid for. And that's, the, that's where the, the, the question kind of ends. It was that desire to obey. It says this. It says, uh, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God and, and here's the last part, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So turning from sin to obedience. That's what we want to do now. They, they cite 2 Corinthians 7, 11. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This godly grief produced earnestness in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, 
you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You want to do this down in you, the, the depths of your heart. You want to please God. Isaiah 1 also is cited, 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. All out of gratitude, not out of guilt. You know Christ bore your guilt on the cross. So you're not seeking obedience to earn anything. You're seeking obedience out of response to having been given everything. That's where it comes from. So it's not a driven of, if I don't do this, God won't love me. If I don't do this, I'll, he'll be distant from me or mad at me. If I don't do this, then, then I'll lose some status or favor. You can't lose that any more than Christ can lose that. So we strive for obedience with real sweat and real tears and real blood out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, because we've turned our back on all of that is behind us. He who's been forgiven much, much forgives much, and he who understands the love of God loves to please him. So this fits right in with our justification study, does it not? I mean, it's just right there in the wheelhouse of it all. I didn't plan that. Lord did. So I can't take any credit for the wisdom that just came out <laughs> the past couple weeks. So repentance and faith is where we end this week. It's two sides of the same coin. Can't really have one unless you have the other. And if you say that you have one without the other, you don't. Because we saw here, they go together. They're both a gift of grace. Both needed to escape the wrath of God and he graciously gives it to all who call upon his name for it.